If you would, take your Bibles, please, and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Book of Nehemiah chapter 1. Today we begin our study in the book of Nehemiah, which is in line with what we've just finished, the study of Ezra and Haggai. This book opens some 13 years after what we studied last Sunday in the book of Ezra, after Ezra arrived in Jerusalem. And it tells the story of the third wave of exiles, those who are returning from captivity back to Jerusalem. Ezra was the second wave, by the way. This book can be divided, can be seen as having two parts. The first is the restoration of the city walls in the first seven chapters. And then from chapter 8 to chapter 13, uh, the reforms that Nehemiah and Ezra tried to put into place. In our study of the first part of Ezra, we saw that Haggai the prophet is mentioned by name. Um, And we looked at the four sermons he preached between August and December of that year, um, encouraging the people to rebuild the temple. Um, In the book of Nehemiah, there is a connection with another prophet, but he's not mentioned by name. That prophet is Malachi. And we find that Nehemiah and Malachi deal with the same issues. The problem of the priests who neglect, who are very careless in carrying out their duties. The neglect of tithes and intermarriage with foreign women. As we saw last week, that's not the issue. It's not a a xenophobic thing. It is because of the pagan practices that these women bring into the household. As we will see, Nehemiah tries to correct these problems. I would point out, and I mentioned last week, we'll see it as we go along. Ezra and Nehemiah were very, very different in terms of personality. Um, when Ezra heard about the intermarriage with pagan women, he pulled out, his, yanked on his beard and pulled out his hair. When Nehemiah hears about it, he goes over to the people intermarried. He pulls out their hair, pulls out their beard. A uh, very, very different approach to the same problem. But in both cases, they're very careful to point out that the hand of the Lord was on them, that the hand of God was on Ezra and on Nehemiah as well. Nehemiah, by the way, means the Lord comforts. And he's not the only person with this name. In these two books, we find at least two other men who have this name. Let's set the stage. It's more than 140 years earlier, Nebuchadnezzar had, had assaulted Jerusalem for the final time. It took 18 months, but he laid siege to the city and finally took it. A month after the city fell, his chief political guy, his captain of the guard, came, burned the temple, burned the city to the ground, and then he had the army to topple the walls of the city of Jerusalem. More than 140 years later, the temple has been rebuilt, but the place is still in ruins, and many of the sections of the wall have not been fixed. I think some of it had been. We'll see that as we go along. Um, But as the book opens, the report that Nehemiah receives is not good. If you will, look at the first three verses here in Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are, gone back in, or are, are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Uh, 
The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. The story opens in Susa. This is the winter palace of the king, Artaxerxes. It is the 20th year of his reign. That's what he means when he says the 20th year. Hanani, or Hanani, one of Nehemiah's brothers, has returned from Judah. We're not sure why he went, unless it was perhaps to scout out the situation and make a report to his brother, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah asks, how's it going? How are the people doing? How is the city? And the report is not good, that the people are in disgrace and trouble. The, walls are, the wall is broken down and the gates are burned. The last two things, by the way, seem to indicate that some work had been done on repairing the walls and the gates, but their enemies have in fact burned the gates and have knocked down whatever walls they had repaired. The city is open and vulnerable. It's not good news. There are different ways to respond to bad news. One can become angry or sorrowful or depressed. And while Nehemiah may have experienced one or all of these things, what we find in his example is one that we should follow. Look, if you would, at verse number four. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. In this, he is just like Ezra. We find him doing what Ezra did when he learned of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. He prayed. He mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. And his prayer follows the laments, the pattern that you find among the Jews of that time. He identifies with his people. He knows the Old Testament, the law in particular. And the law has a special place, as we will see as we go through this book. The structure of the prayer, I think, is relatively straightforward. It begins with an invocation of God. And then there is a confession of sin a request for God to remember his people, and then finally, this is the specific request, a request for success. Follow along, if you would, as I read, beginning in verse number 5. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands... Then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Praise opens his prayer as Nehemiah acknowledges who God is. He is the great and awesome God. There is no presumption that God must do as Nehemiah requests. He is, as the King James has it, the great and terrible God. He is one who is awe-inspiring, one whom we should stand in fear of. 
he is not, I think, as C.S. Lewis coined the phrase, the celestial chum. Someone that we can just sort of traipse into his presence and say, this is what I want. He begins by acknowledging who God is. It is this God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. You'll notice that the NIV has covenant of love. Put it together. But most translations have covenant and love. That these are two different things. God keeps his covenant because he loves his people. They are described as those who love him in return and they also obey his commands. It is to this God that Nehemiah addresses his prayer. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. But immediately what follows is a confession of sin. And as we saw with Ezra, Nehemiah doesn't say, you know, those people over there, they sinned. Our ancestors sinned. Those terrible people. He says, well, look if you would in verse number six. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. This confession is particularly important because if you remember what he just said in praising God is that God is a God of covenant and of love. Those who love him and keep his commands, well, guess what? They haven't kept his commands. They haven't obeyed him. So one could make the case that they haven't got a leg to stand on. They have no basis whatever to ask God for anything. Because in love he has made a covenant with him and they have not kept the covenant. They have not obeyed him. They have not obeyed in threefold commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. In short, they have sinned against God. They have forfeited any right, any of the benefits that come with being children of the covenant. They are not entitled to the covenant love of God. But this isn't the end of the story. Nehemiah knows his Old Testament. He knows Deuteronomy. He continues praying, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. And what is that? It's from, from Deuteronomy 30. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart, and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Nehemiah is well aware that they went into exile because of their sin. But he's also aware that that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the people of Israel. It's not the end of the people of the covenant. There's also the promise that if they return with all their heart and their soul, then the Lord would restore them. He would have compassion on them. He would gather them from where they'd been scattered. He would bring them back to the land of their ancestors and make them more prosperous and numerous than their ancestors. And Nehemiah calls on God to remember this promise. Just to review a bit, earlier in the year we did a series on memory, a theology of memory. 
And we saw that God's memory, God's remembering, is quite different from ours. Um, Not only because it's not a neurological act as ours is, but because God, in God's memory, he holds us and remembers us exactly as we are. Our memories are faulty. And every time we remember something, a little something is taken off of it. But God remembers us as we are. David said in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. And indeed, God does know us. But his memory is not like ours. In part because for God there is no past present and future. These are not concepts that can be applied to him. God exists outside of time. So in a sense there is no past for him to recall because he is eternal present. When we read of God remembering, it is that God sustains us and God acts toward us. To be remembered by God is to be sustained by him. And to be remembered by him is to be the recipient of his divine action. Simply put, when God remembers, God acts. It isn't like, oh yeah, I remember that, and do absolutely nothing about it. God's remembering is God's acting. Does Nehemiah know all this? Does Nehemiah have a great theology of memory? Um, You know, if the answer is no, I, I will not be greatly affected by it. What he does know is that God keeps his promises. God keeps his covenant. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Then we come to verse number 11. And here is the specific request. In the very last line, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Who is this man? Well, we're sort of told in the next line, I was cupbearer to the king. Uh, We need to be careful here that we don't think of this as sort of a glorified butler to the king. That he is the, wine, the one to taste the wine to make sure it's not poison. Uh, but indications are from historical records that this position involved a great deal more than that. That in some situations the cupbearer to the king was second in the kingdom. You have the king and then you have the cupbearer. It was a very high and influential position, a very powerful position. And somehow in God's providence this exile Nehemiah has risen through the ranks And now he is the person at the right hand of Artaxerxes. He is the the cupbearer to the king. And the prayer request is that while in this capacity, Nehemiah might be granted favor in order that he can ask ask for something from the king. Now we come to chapter 2. It begins in the month of Nisan the 20th year of Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? In this section, we see Nehemiah and his work in the capacity of cupbearer to the king. The date is important, even though we may not get it because we're not familiar with that. It's been four months since Nehemiah received the terrible report of what's going on there. And now it is the new year. For us, it would be April. But for both the Persians and the Jews, it is the first month of a new year. It's a time of celebration. 
So this isn't just like an everyday, you know, like the king is on his throne taking care of business. Because if you look, I think it's in verse number six, you'll see that the queen is there with him. Well, she's not usually with the king. She's there on times of celebration. So this is a time of joy. And Nehemiah apparently doesn't look like he is happy. We may not think it's a big deal to look sad, but when you're in the presence of the king and you're not sick and you look sad, then this could only seem to indicate that you're dissatisfied with something. And this is a very dangerous position to take when you're in the presence of the king. And so we read Nehemiah saying, I was very much afraid. This is not something you do. But Nehemiah tells the king why he is sad because of the terrible report he has received. The city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then we have the unexpected, at least to me, response in verse number four. The king said to me, what is it you want? This is really quite remarkable. A king asking a servant, a king asking someone who is underneath him and everybody's underneath him, What is it that you want? And then we come to what for me is the most important sentence or statement in the whole book of Nehemiah. Whenever I think of Nehemiah, I think of this statement. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. See, Nehemiah has been mourning and fasting and praying for four months now. One could argue he's done enough praying. Okay? And yet here at a critical moment, he continues to look to God in dependence. And we can surmise, at least from what he tells us, that this is an internal prayer. He doesn't go over in the corner and raise his hands and start praying aloud. It is private, and I think it is brief. Um, I don't want to presume to imagine, well, I do presume to imagine, but I don't know what he said, but help. Here goes... um, It was a brief prayer. And if you look at it, because the sentence is not simply, then I pray to the God of heaven, it's then I pray to the God of heaven, and I answer the king. So there's not a lot of time that happens here. The king says, what is it you want? And Nehemiah in that moment prays to God and then speaks to the king. I think it is because Nehemiah had spent four months in prayer that he is aware of the importance of prayer. But also, he's been praying, so now this is sort of the culmination. Here goes, I'm going to ask the king. I think there's much to instruct us here. The need for extended prayer, but also the need for prayer throughout the day, particularly when we face various situations, that we can in a moment internally pray to God and ask for wisdom and ask him to direct us. And perhaps this is what Paul meant when he told the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. In the King James and the NIV, pray continually. Now, as Nehemiah tells the king what it is he wants, I think it becomes very clear that Nehemiah prepared for this conversation. He had perhaps even rehearsed this, made an outline, bullet points. This is what he's going to ask the king. There's no guarantee he would be given the opportunity or that the king would say, what is it you want? For all we know, the king could have said, go home and you know, put a happy face on before you come back. But Nehemiah is prepared. 
He's got it all worked out. The project, the timeline, which he sets, by the way, not the king. Again, amazing. The needed documents and the needed supplies. Look, if you would, in verse 5. And I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, king of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. Nehemiah is prepared. He knows exactly what he needs. But he is aware. He continues, Because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So, Nehemiah heads off for Jerusalem. And he gets actually more than he asked for, because we are told that the king sent, if you look at verse number 9, So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. This is almost as miraculous as what we saw with Cyrus and Darius earlier on. It is quite remarkable. This man who holds up wine for the king has been given this authority and this permission so it's going to go great, right? Well, if you've been with us going through Ezra, we know better than that. What happens? Verse number 10, there is opposition. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Sanballat, by the way, is a name known in history as the governor of Samaria, the province north of Judah. Samaria was populated by people who had come from other places. They were exiles from other places that had been put there um, by the Assyrians and had taken up some of the Jewish practices, but they mixed it with their own pagan practices. Nehemiah gets there in verse number 11. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out the night, during the night with a few men. It's the same way with Ezra. It's a long journey. It takes three days to recuperate, rest, clean up, and now he's ready to get to work. And in verse number 12, that's precisely what he does. But he does it at night. He does a nighttime inspection of the walls. He doesn't want people to know what's going on. Look at verse 12. I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up to the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. I think these names, for the most part, mean little or nothing to most people, but one can surmise that Jerusalem, at least part of it, is indeed in ruins. And as he looks at it at night and inspects it, he can see that this is the case, that there is a lot of work that needs to be done. The gates have been destroyed by fire. We've been told that several times. But the damage at a certain point is such 
that Nehemiah's horse can't even get through. And he has to sort of make a U-turn and go back and enter the way that he had left the city. But look at verse 16. He doesn't tell the local officials. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. Because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Now he reveals the plans. Verse 17. Then I said to them, you, are, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. The local officials, I think, have been waiting for a leader, waiting for someone with a sense of vision, what needs to be done. And he tells them, and they're like, let's do it. Let's get to work. So what happens? Verse 19, should not be unexpected. There is opposition But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? The ESV has it. They jeered and despised us. The King James has they laughed us to scorn and despised us. Opposition is one thing, but to be made fun of, I think, is, is very hurtful, very painful. To be mocked and ridiculed, jeered at and despised. This is tough. And they challenged Nehemiah and the Jewish officials with two questions. What is this you are doing and are you in rebellion against the king? And Nehemiah responds and here our last verse in verse number 20. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants, we his servants will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. I find it fascinating that Nehemiah responds to them. He doesn't say, look at this, I have paper from the king. He doesn't say, by the way, I'm the, you know who I am? I'm the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. Um, he in fact doesn't mention the king at all. Rather, he tells them, God will give us success. We are God's servants. We will rebuild the city wall. Quite remarkable, I think. When I think the temptation, at least for me, would be, listen, you want to play that game? I'll see your ridicule and show you the letter of the king. What do you want to do about that? On the other hand, he wants to make it very clear that these three men, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, have no legal share in the city, in Jerusalem. They have no claim to the city and no historic right. That is, they do not have the right to participate in the activities of Jerusalem, specifically the temple and the sacrificial system. At different points, we've seen already that the people who are not Jews want to somehow join in this project of rebuilding the temple years ago. Let me read to you from Ezra 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. 
Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They wanted to join in because in their minds, they're just like them. We're just like you Jews. We worship the same God. Oh, yeah, we, we do some other crazy stuff with it, you know, from our, for our own, old way of belief, but we're just like you. And the leadership says, no, you have no part. And Nehemiah says, you have no claim. You have no historic right. You're not going to be a part of this project. When it comes to rebuilding the wall, Nehemiah tells them the same thing that Zerubbabel told them when it came to rebuilding the temple. This is not, your, this is not something you're going to participate in. Lord willing, we'll continue this next week. But if you know anything about the book of Nehemiah, specifically commentaries on the book of Nehemiah, it's really common for people who write about him to point out what a great, what a great organizer he was. As one writer put it, he had extraordinary organizational skills. We will see this as we go along. We've already seen it to a certain extent that when the king says, what is it that you want, he's able to lay it out. He knows exactly what needs to be done. He was an extremely practical man with common sense. He was a generous man who not only did not take a salary for his position as governor of Judah, we will see that later, but gave liberally out of his own resources. He was impartial. He had a sense of vision and of mission. This was a great leader. And various Christian writers have written books on how to be a great Christian leader following the example of Nehemiah. All of these things are true about Nehemiah. But where we should start, and where the book of Nehemiah starts, is that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Upon hearing the distressing reports about Jerusalem and the exiles, Nehemiah prays. Yes, he mourns and he fasts, but this leads him to pray. And when he's confronted by the king, what is it you want? He prays. He prays to the God of heaven, and then he answers the king. And as we begin our study of Nehemiah, this is where we should start. It's a man of prayer and an example we should follow. Years ago, I remember somebody asking, and I think it might have been Francis Schaeffer, if there was no such thing as prayer, how different would your life be? How different would your week be? How different would your day be? Prayer is answering speech. God begins the conversation. He speaks to us. He has spoken to us, but he continues to do so. And we are to respond in prayer. But if we are not like Nehemiah, if we're not people of prayer, then I think we've really missed something quite important. If we want to follow his example, then I think prayer has got to be at the top of the list. God has spoken. Are we listening? God has spoken. Are we answering? Or do we find at the end of the day we haven't prayed? Is it possible at the end of the week we've not prayed? Think about it. If, if suddenly God said, okay, no, there's not going to be any more prayer, would your life be radically different? should be. It should be. And with this man, Nehemiah, this amazing man, as we will see, it begins with prayer.
Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for the story of Nehemiah and the example he sets for us. We also thank you for the privilege of prayer and confess freely that too often we neglect it. Whether in extended form or those brief moments when we cry out to you, sometimes it doesn't seem to occur to us that this is what we're supposed to be doing. In part because we haven't been listening. We haven't been paying attention. As you arrange the circumstances of our lives, as you bring people into our lives, as you bring difficulties into our lives. These are wonderful chances for us to speak to you, to respond to you in prayer. We may not be the most organized people, but we can be people of prayer. We may not be leadership material, but we can be people of prayer. And by your grace, by your spirit, may we follow the example of of Nehemiah. When difficulties come, bad news, or when wonderful things happen, may we be people of prayer. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.